on a personal level, I have a very hard, hard time not thinking about politics. At times I envy people who don't know who a Republican is or a Democrat, or let alone even who the president is. I feel as though they must live in such blissful ignorance. I can't do it. I'm challenged on a personal level because I think it's because I live in a world of ideas. I'm constantly thinking about the implication of ideas, and that's what politics is. It's the, the implication of ideas, and ideas have consequences. And so I think on a personal level, I, have a, I struggle with the, the, the compartmentalization of things. And uh, I have to take very seriously what Daniel said, Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 to 21. He said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, and he removes kings and sets up kings. Blessed. It's God's blessing, and he, he's a blessed heavenly father who knows what he's doing, even though it doesn't look like at times he knows what he's doing. But what do we do? do can, we, can we give a, a word of blessing? Can we speak well of God when he permits wicked princes to rule over his people? What do we do in those situations? Well, to quote a famous fish, we just keep swimming. We've got to keep swimming. We've got to keep trusting. We've got to just keep obeying. Nothing has changed because God is still on the throne and his word is irrevocable and his word to us is also irrevocable. Yeah, but come on, we've got taskmasters now. We've got inflation. We've got crime out of control. But has God's word changed? Well, the reality is we ought not be agitated to the point where we become distrusting of our Heavenly Father. Uh, This week I was talking with uh, the group that comes out on Wednesday evening for prayer and how I was convicted over Psalm 37, and it, it tells us not to fret over evildoers. Uh, That word fret reminds me of my grandmother, uh, a word that she would use. And I read in a a new translation just recently the word agitate. Don't be agitated. And I thought, well, I can identify with that a little bit better than fret. Because my heart tends to get really agitated when I see wicked people succeeding. But I have to ask, the scriptures tell us, Whether a new king in Egypt or a new king in America, is God's word not still the same? It is. And because God's word is irrevocable, we ought not fear the words of kings. That is the message that I hope to bring to us this morning from Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1, if you were here last Sunday... We were invited to ask, how did, Egypt, how did Israel get into Egypt in the first place? And we took time to look through the backstory of four generations, starting from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, and observing God's hand in the background guiding them into Egypt when the fullness of time had come. And that's a long time. There's a lot of movement, a lot of uh, moving pieces, 
And I think to myself, you know, Abraham, when he first set out from Ur of the Chaldees, he was told this, this massive vision that he would have all these offspring and he would have this land and he never really lived to see it. I mean, he got to the land, he put his feet in the land, and he started kind of networking in the land. But somewhere along the line, he must have realized, I'm not going to live to see this completed. Um, I don't know how long, uh, I don't know if you're aware of how long it took to build Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, but it took just about 200 years. Can you imagine being the stonemason? who doesn't get to see the, the stained glass being put in or even the roof being put in. He, he might have even died before, you know, like the walls were starting to be erected. That's a building project that you have to have faith in that will exist beyond yourself. And in the same way, Abraham, by faith, recognized that God's word was irrevocable and that it would come to pass regardless if he was there to see it or not. And that's the kind of faith he had in God. And so that's the kind of faith he had hoped to pass on to his children, that God's word is irrevocable, and that you can put your faith in that. And you don't have to worry about what the kings of this world are doing. Now, when we come to our text this morning, verses 8 and following, we, we, we see tremendous, beautiful Hebrew storytelling. There is conflict that's being brought up here. Because on the one hand, if you look at the first five verses, you see, you see the, the fathers entering into Egypt. You see Joseph there receiving them. You also see, um, if you look at verse 5, it says, and all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. And you can see in this the irrevocable nature of God's word bringing this all to pass. But what's going to happen now that the fathers are gone? What's going to happen now when a new king arises who doesn't even remember the contractual safety net that was provided to Joseph for his whole family. And now we have contrast between the promises of God, the blessings of generation growth, and now you have oppression coming. And so we have in contrast the voice of God in contrast with the voice of Pharaoh, whose voice will win out. Whose voice should we trust? And Moses, who's writing this, is, is skillfully presenting three vocalizations of oppression against God's people. The question is, whose voice will win out in the end? So let's follow the voice as it speaks, and we're going to, as we go through these three voices, you're going to see different principles, a variety of principles that we can take and understand that God's word to us is something that we ought to hang on to, 
We ought to obey it. We ought to love it. And it may put us in conflict with the princes of this world. So in verses 8 through 14, I want us to see this first vocalization. You have Pharaoh who conspires with his people to enslave Israel. Uh, Verse 8, if you see, you follow along with me, it says, Now there rose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh gathers together his people. That's referring not to every citizen in Egypt. That's referring to like his court, his advisors, his, the, the, the leadership within Egypt. And he advises that we deal shrewdly, and it sounds much more like a negotiated or coerced relationship that he's suggesting take place. And in this first utterance, we see God's irrevocable word, in spite of what Pharaoh intends to do, God's word is successful and multiplies the people, and they spread abroad. You can see that in verse 12, verse 12, it says, but the people, uh, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And we see also the character of wicked men trying to, to overturn what God intends to do. And by this design, Moses, who's recounting this history, he wants us to believe that the character of God is much more trustworthy than the character of the princes that are in our world. And I want to show you two principles at work here in the contrast that's going on. There is contrast between oppression and treachery and ruthlessness, and yet there is also faithfulness going on in the background. And so in verses 8 to 10, I see God's faithfulness being greater than man's treachery. And I want to say it is treachery. Because it's very hard to imagine that a new king could arise and not at least intellectually know the history of the, of the sphere that he's going to govern. And he would be well aware of the ancient provisions that had been guaranteed to the Hebrews on the basis of Joseph's kindness. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean that he did not know who Joseph was? Now, we have a variety of words that we have English words that sometimes, based on context, have different meanings. And we use different words on purpose. Well, it's the same in Hebrew. And the particular word choice that's used here is is not merely intellectual knowledge. It's a word that talks about knowing someone on a very personal, relational level. And it's a surprising, you know, this word can be used to talk about familiarity of, of historical recall, but it talks about having skilled insight, like being like a skilled master plumber. You have a knowledge that the local, other people don't have. But there's a really surprising aspect that this word is used at times. It's used for, in the King James, 
you will hear it at times speak of marital intimacy, of knowing a woman. Now this, because it has all of these connotations, it's not intended to be just the cold facts. It's talking about a warm, experiential knowledge, and it develops through relationship. So this Pharaoh didn't have an intimate, personal relationship with Joseph, and that's true. However, he had enough knowledge about Joseph that he ought to have known that it was his duty to uphold the covenants of the country and to honor those agreements that had been made to Israel. Earlier kings might not necessarily have believed in Joseph's God, but they knew Joseph. And by knowing Joseph, they had respect for Joseph's deity. And still, he should have honored this contractual relationship. And we have to ask, why was it that he broke his word? Why did he break the word that had been given? It was because he was fearful. It was because he was fearful. And this is how most of us fall into sin. We get fearful. And we go into self-protection mode. And we make all kinds of justifications for things that we ought not to have done and to break word. And they were fearful that if there was an enemy invader, that there would be a coalition that would develop and topple the nation, topple the leadership within Egypt. And I don't know if you realize this, but princes in this world are also very fearful, not just of the Jews, but also of Christians. We are a feared people now in America. This not, not used to be the case, but we are a feared people in America. Jesus has always been a destabilizing to totalitarian overlords. Societies that pride themselves on being tolerant and inclusive get very anxious about Christians. It's remarkable how intolerant and how exclusive the world becomes when they realize that Christianity is something that threatens their rule and their establishment. And I think it's important for us to realize that our claims as Christians, our claim is a threat to wicked princes because we base all of our faith upon a historical event that occurred. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes claims upon the world. And it makes leaders fearful, and treachery happens when people become fearful. But God, thankfully, is not like the princes of this world. God is not treacherous with his people. He may allow us to experience difficulty from persecution might be that a spouse, for example, doesn't appreciate our faith in Christ. It makes things difficult for us so that we can't get out to worship the Lord like I would, we would want to. It could be a co-worker that doesn't treat us properly because we have found religion. It could be a boss who gives favors to those who will go out with them and party. And our own government may even not give us recognition like we would want. 
But we ought not be downhearted. We ought not get agitated. We have to remember, rather, the promises of God that we are to rejoice and be glad for the reward will be great for us in heaven. That is the promise, and God's word is irrevocable, and it will be there for us. Just like Abraham. He was not always able to see the end promise in his lifetime, but history has shown that God's word was irrevocable. Man's unjust acts are smaller than God's acts of justice. And this is a second principle that I see in this text. In verses uh, 11 to 14, you kind of see the implications of Pharaoh acting shrewdly. And uh, Egyptians, verse 11 and verse 13, um, afflict the people. They enslave the people. And the Hebrews' lives become embittered because of this this discussion that he has with his leadership. Uh, They build supply cities for the government. They're co-opted to work, forced labor to build Pithom and Ramses. And it it becomes, in, in the end, frustrating to the Egyptians because their policy design is not creating the results that they had hoped. Now, in verse 11, there's a really interesting word that's used. In verse 11, if you look with me, it says, They therefore set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Now that word, taskmaster, is interesting because it's, it, it, it's a word that's maybe not f- so familiar to us, but it really describes how the Egyptians were able to take over and enslave the Jews. It's more closely lined to a word we, none of us here probably have ever heard of it before, but the word corvée, corvée bosses, it's a French word. A corvée in the feudalistic world of France back in the Middle Ages, a corvée was somebody who was assigned unpaid labor in exchange for taxes. In other words, the government would come to you and say, this is how much taxes you owe us, or you can substitute it if you don't have the the means to pay this off, you 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 can join this work group and you can pay off your debt by working alongside a supervisor. And that's very much probably how it took place. And this Egyptian shrewdly came up with a scheme that would make it economically challenging for the Hebrews to have enough time in their lives to properly care for a family of any size. Shrewd government does not outright ban having children. Instead, they come up with schemes to make the economics of having a large family appear not to be in your best interest. And there's nothing new under the sun. I don't know if you realize, but the government policy in America for the last 80 years has made families have to choose between having more children and having less income. And it is the pinnacle of godlessness to suppress childbearing. Let me give you an example. If you ever, I mean, we live in a country area, so 
if you live in a city area, you are looked at as an odd person if you have more than one and a half children. When, a- when Abby and I were young parents living in the greater Toronto area, it was so common when Abby was at the grocery store with four young boys under the age of five that the, sh- the-, the checkout girl would say, are you running a daycare? You think about the cost differential between a four-door car, like a Camry, and then buying a minivan. A minivan is predicated on just having four seats or five seats at the most. What if you need eight seats? What if you need nine seats? How many nine-seat vehicles do you see running around? How many, how many car seats can you put in a back of a Corolla? Can you get three in there? How many children a family has is obviously discussion. It's got to be a three-way discussion between the couple and the Lord. And we know that you may desire to have a large family, and the Lord, through providence, closes the womb. But be it known that raising children to love God is a very practical way to gain influence for the gospel in this world. And the unjust acts of Pharaoh towards God's people were being felt. Because it was essentially they had to work part-time for the government at no wages. And then they had to go tend to their gardens so that they could support their family or their livestock. And as you know, it's difficult to run two and three part-time jobs. It wasn't just, and their souls were bitter. And we too can get bitter if we let our souls go in that direction. And as much as the acts of man are a real injustice, we should not forget they are nevertheless insignificant to the justice of our great God. He will make wrongs right, and he will overrule. And God's silent hand of providence was working that no matter how hard they made Israel's life difficult, God was still blessing them, and they were having children upon children, and they were spreading out. They were going to overtake and outstrip the Egyptians. Never, never let the, the difficulties push you from doing what is right in the sight of God. So there's the covert, the covert discussion, the words of Pharaoh talking within his court, trying to overpower and manipulate. He gets frustrated, and so in verses 15 to 21, Pharaoh then expands his conversation to speak with the midwives who are there for delivery of babies. In verse 15 to 21, which we read earlier, you see that he now commands the Jewish midwives, to kill the babies. Frustrated at the forced labor, not limiting the population, Pharaoh next moves towards genocide. At this stage, it is still yet done covertly, and he summons these two women into his court. And the names that are given to us, Shephira and Pua, seem to indicate that these are really the only women who were in this, tr- in this trade. I- I've heard some people argue that 
um, there were perhaps the leadership of a guild of midwives, and I'm not sure if that can be fully argued because uh, the, there's kind of a general talk in verse 19 of, of women and, and general talk of midwives, but I really think it's referring to themselves in the third person of showing up. And there are only two women who are, in the end, rewarded publicly, at least from the perspective of God blessing their homes. And so we, we know that God was very pleased with their actions. And twice we read, in verse 17 and verse 21, we read that they feared God. They feared God. It was a very difficult position to be in. And they were called to have to make a difficult choice because telling the truth is an absolute. And they do, in fact, lie. And we're not to have rebellious stances towards government in general. And so yet these very wise women were able to put their faith in God and make an impossible decision because they had a recognition that God's word is irrevocable and they should not get in the way of his intention to multiply Israel's seed. Now, through this interaction with Pharaoh, I see three principles that I think that we can take to ourselves as we think about our relationship with a hostile government that may want us to do things as believers, that we ought not do. And the first is that triage of doctrine is an honorable, is a way to still honor God. Intellectually, we know the word triage you may not be familiar with is, is the, it's the idea of prioritizing. Like uh, when, when people go into uh, an ER, the first nurse there evaluates your situation and then ranks you based upon emergency and need. So that's the idea here. So when we look at doctrines, how do we assess which one we should follow in our moment of need to make a decision, in our emergency? And intellectually, we know that violation of God's moral law is sin, and that knowledge itself instinctively is within us. And we also know instinctively that there are certain consequences that are greater and lesser when we violate God's word. For example, we know that taking human life tends to have a greater weight to it than telling a lie, no matter how bad they are. They both are enough to send us to hell. We understand that. But there are mightier matters that are in the law. And this moral sense that we have shouldn't be downplayed and become an excuse. For example, it was very common for nominal Christians in Nazi Germany to say we must obey the government and expose the Jews. Because by choosing that route, it was easier for them. And it was a total disrespect for the weightier things that are in God's law. Jesus talked about this when the Pharisees claimed that they couldn't do merciful things for people around them because they were tithing. They were tithing everything. They were tithing the mint, the dill, and they had ignored the weightier things of the law of showing mercy and acting and doing justly. 
They were using the law as an excuse from doing good. Now, I think you should never use this scripture story as any form of justification for telling a lie. Just as it was, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, look, you ought to, yes, be tithing, but you should not be using that tithing as an excuse not to help those who are in need. You can do both. But yet there is a weightiness here, and this is an impossible situation, and I don't believe that God is condemning them for lying in this case, but ultimately God knows the heart. He knows whether or not we are going to use something to self-justify, to get what we want, rather than to honor God with our decision-making. There are times, yes, when we should disobey government, but we should not have a stance where we're ready to disobey at every turn of everything. That should not be how we start our process of thinking. But God knows, he knows, and you need to be wise, and these women were very wise. There is a, an honest honoring of God that can happen when we triage doctrine. Now, verse 19, we see the response the midwives have to Pharaoh when they're asked, why is it, you know, that uh, you've done this? You, you, you're letting all these male babies be born. And um, I see in this a principle that, that resistance to wickedness is, is obedience to God. There are maybe elements of truth in which they say, you know, by the time we got there, the baby was already born. I don't know if you know it, but this is what's called slow walking. It's walking deliberately slow so that you don't have to carry out what you've been asked to do. Now, often that's not good. We don't encourage our children to be slow walkers. We, we want them to be obedient right away. But our national heritage was born out of armed resistance to tyrants. And there are a lot of things, though, that we can do that don't have to lead us to armed violence. Slow walking is one of those things that we can do. And normally we would say, you know, passive-aggressive behavior is not really beautiful or welcome. But in this case, if we slow walk and not go with the flow, it is a spectacular display of a beautiful character. And when we look at our own culture, I want us to recognize this is not just related to government. Our culture is going in directions of extreme wickedness. Proverbs 31, verse 30 says this, that favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. These women... These women in the story are praiseworthy because they resisted the wickedness that was around them. I believe, and I need to speak to our young women for a moment, our culture actively praises girls who are willing to be immodest in their attitudes and their attire. And I want to encourage young men and young women to be slow walkers. 
be slow walkers and resist the Instagram, TikTok, or social media pressure that you experience. You can slow walk against the culture. You don't have to go with the flow. And then you will be praised. God says, that's where real beauty is. And these women had real beauty of the heart because they were willing to resist the culture and direct instruction to go against God's word. Shifra, Shifra, excuse me, one of the women's names actually means beauty. And the meaning of pua is a little bit uncertain, but both of these women display an inner beauty because they put God first. There's another principle that I see in this response that I, that I think can be helpful for us in, in thinking about our relationship with government or those who do wickedly. Verse 19, I see them mocking their oppressors. They are mocking Pharaoh. And he is so gullible, he doesn't even see the mockery that's going on. And I believe that mockery of oppressors is a way that we can demonstrate trust in God. Their slow walking is one form of resistance, but now they actually mock Pharaoh by saying, or actually critiquing his racial pride. He looks at himself as being superior to the Jews, and these ladies say, well, our women are actually more superior to your women. Our women are so strong that they can bear babies before we even get there. Your women may need help at the birthing stool, but our women don't. Take it there, Pharaoh. That's what they're doing. They're mocking. And God has, this is a time-honored way of mocking oppressors. God has, God has always uh, allowed us to, to treat oppressors in this way. In the end, evil is frustrated here, as usual, there is this progressive, things getting harder and harsher, but in the midst of that, God is still active. He's still working in the background. And if we're called to resist government, we need to make sure that our hearts are focused on God. I know a, a couple of years ago, I think there's an important application to make at this juncture because I think we have all probably heard rumors about how things might go this winter. A couple of years ago, I think many of us were not well prepared to respond to a heavy hand of government. And I think we're a little bit wiser now. But I think that the temptation may still be there for us, whether or not we should comply or not, to lockdowns and compliance. I think we need to remember that the gathering together of the saints is always an essential part of our faith and practice. And when our government attempts to oppress the free exercise of religion, we are freely within our right to mock the foolishness that's around us. There are always ways to resist government edicts. We could even meet in undisclosed locations. That's been going on for years. In Iran, in China. God's people have been meeting regardless of their circumstances. And so I think it's important for us to have a refresher on this because while life is easy, it could be very tempting to say, oh, I will do what I should do. But when life is easy, if we are not prioritizing the time, our time together, how much more 
harder do you think it will be underneath of intense pressure? God's word is irrevocable, and so we ought to not fear the words of kings. So, as a pastoral admonition and encouragement to you, I don't know what the future will bring. I pray that we don't go backwards, but that we learn, have learned collectively as a nation. But I am praying uh, that we will have the courage to stand if we are called to stand. Uh, verse 22 is the last utterance that I want us to focus on just very briefly here at the end. Three times with escalating violence against God's people, you have the general economic pressures that are applied, and that doesn't work. And then you have the, the covert killing of babies, and that doesn't seem to work. And then thirdly, we have now Pharaoh publicly commands all his people to kill babies. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This third attempt is a public universal decree to kill babies. Cast them into the Nile. It's very possible that soldiers made sweeps through the communities and looked for infants that were crying and took them and tossed them into the river. Alligators inhabit the Nile, and if they even can swim, and if they, it's just horrific what was going on. But it seems that there probably was a snitch line of sorts to report your neighbor. God's people were hated. God's people have always been hated. And we should expect to endure hardship as public policy moves towards radical transgenderism. We should expect to be hated by the world. Just as much as our brethren in Iran and China have been hated, and Muslim-majority nations have hated Christians. But as I said, there's this growing pattern of, of, of intensity. But in these seasons, we ought not despair, because if we persist, and as we are faithful, truth will ultimately prevail if we faint not. In the early years of Christian heritage, our forefathers experienced intense persecution in the first couple centuries. In fact, the greatest persecution occurred just, like, just before the peace came. And often is the case that as you have a severe buildup, then there's a switch, and God steps in and gives us relief. And in that pattern, we also see God pervert, providing for his own and also blessing and keeping his irrevocable word. And so I want to close in thinking about this question. A new king in Egypt? A new king in America? We might have a president who doesn't know the God of our fathers. But we do not need to fear. Your heavenly father knows your faith. He knows you, even if they forget. He knows you intimately, and he will protect you and preserve you and will bring you to a better place. Why would he do that? Because his word is irrevocable, and we ought not fear the words of King.